Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Julian Ha, partner in Hydric and Struggles' Washington, D.C. office and leader of the global government and policy practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to Tim Wang. Tim is founder, chairman, and CEO of Fiscal Note. Fiscal Note, which went public in August of this year, is the premier information services company focused on reshaping how companies understand global policy and market intelligence by combining AI technology expert analysis, and legislative, regulatory, and geopolitical data. Full disclosure, I've known Tim for many years and have been an advisor to Fiscal Note. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, great to be on. So what led you to found Fiscal Note? And please share with us the origin story of how you received your first seed money and from whom, if you can. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> I've always been interested in politics at a really young age. And, you know, when I first started off in my career, I thought that I was going to be a politician, believe it or not. And so I was involved in a bunch of different political campaigns. I joined the Obama campaign in particular early on in 07, 08, really got a kind of taste for campaigns and elections and the political process. And, you know, I ended up running for small political office in Maryland at the age of 17, getting elected on the Board of Education. And I was really, really interested in policy and politics. And around, I would say 2010, I just started actually university over at Princeton. And I was trying to merge my two interests in technology and politics. And so I was kind of mulling over different ideas that, you know, how to use sort of an engineering background or computer science background to help out in policy, maybe something like data privacy or the FTC or the like. And I think that as I was kind of reading the news, if you kind of recall back in the early 2010s, it was just an onslaught of kind of regulatory activity. Uber was coming out to market and, you know, their executives were getting dragged in front of regulators and prosecutors were kind of chasing them up and down the country or in, you know, around the world. Airbnb was getting investigated by the attorney general over New York. Zenefits and Theranos and a bunch of other companies were just kind of going through significant regulatory challenges. And the thought that I had at the time was that, man, these companies really don't understand regulations and regulators. And that there was this wide gap between policy, politics, and business in general. And it was exacerbated by, you know, growing up, kind of coming out of the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the almost antagonistic nature between regulatory agencies and the private sector. And one last kind of anecdote that I would put out there is, you know, when I was sitting in politics and in government, one of the things you realize is that it's very difficult for people in politics to actually understand what other people are doing. And so the White House is absolutely obsessed with what Congress is working on or what their regulatory agencies are working on. You know, if you go down to the state level, they're constantly trying to triage between federal mandates and incentives and what each of their local jurisdictions and the like are working on at any given time. And there's a lot of autonomy in this sort of federal government structure. And I just felt like there was all this information that was out there that wasn't getting organized and that people were just scrambling to figure out what any part of the government was working on. And so in a nutshell, we decided to kind of move to Silicon Valley. You know, I bought a one-way ticket with a bunch of my high school friends. And we had this idea to basically aggregate large amounts of government information and build effectively like a Bloomberg terminal for law. So creating this subscription product where people can log on, they pay a monthly subscription and they can effectively get access to legislation, regulations, government information, the like, for them to understand potential regulations or public policies or legislation or, or changes in laws 
that might potentially impact their business, their industry, their constituency, or, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, we're probably 21 years old at the time. We moved out to Silicon Valley and bootstrapped a couple thousand dollars from summer savings and internships, and we're kind of pretty much straight out of college. And in true Silicon Valley fashion, you know, we were kind of looking around for apartments in South Bay and realized that we couldn't afford anything. So we kind of triaged and moved into a motel six room for a couple of months. And that's actually where we started our company. Two guys on each bed and one person sleeping on the floor, just trying to get this company off the ground and probably working 16 hour days, seven days a week, coding, calling customers, pitching investors. And then, as you mentioned, Julian, we started a pathway of kind of building up the company and realized that we needed to raise capital. And so I remember one night, you know, after working, I don't know, an 18 hour day or something, we were watching Shark Tank and I just thought, you know, hey, you know, it'd be really cool if Mark Cuban invested in the company. And so went on Google, literally typed in Mark Cuban email address, went to the contact us page of one of his companies and then shot him a cold email. 45 minutes later, Mark responds and a couple of days later, he says, I'm in. And he was the first check into the company. And so from there, it was Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo and NEA, which is a large venture capital firm. And collectively, they kind of put us on this initial pathway after we raised our first, you know, $1.3 million and got the company off the ground. Amazing story. So that really worked. And I hope you've decided to buy that Motel 6 or at least make it part <laughs> of the uh, Fiscal Note Museum someday. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So let me ask you, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, what helped you as a leader through that process, right? I mean, that was tough, right? To kind of make that decision to move out, one-way ticket. And then also, why did you decide to go public? And what was the experience like that as a leader of leading a company to a public process? Well, you know, I think that a startup founder faces various stages of maturity at various points of the company's history. So at zero to 10 people, there are certain challenges that you have. They're almost existential. You have to build a product. You have to get that product validated by customers. Customers have to respond to that. At 10 to 20 people, you have to start building a more diverse team in terms of making sure that you have all the different components around operations and sales and marketing and product and engineering. And you're still trying to make sure that maybe the business model is refined or, you know, the unit economics are working. There's a lot of risk, you know, in that first phase. You know, let's say you have your first couple of customers off a product that people are buying. Then you have to start scaling the business and somewhere around 20 to 50 people, your job is to effectively start recruiting at scale and building a management team who can effectively operate a real company. All along the way, you're trying to raise capital and you know, minimize dilution and make sure that you have enough runway to keep building the business. Let's say you have a product, you have a customer base, you have a small but mighty management team, then you have to start building a business, especially one that takes in venture capital you're sort of on the shot clock to building a very large business. And so from one to 10 to 20 to 50 million in revenues, you have to basically start pressing on the gas pedal and building sustainable sales and marketing strategies to attract new customers and retain the existing ones that you have. And then somewhere along the line, companies sort of get to the stage, they start amassing hundreds of employees and expanding to new geographies and adding a couple new product lines. You're basically ripping out the playbook every six months and building the company. You're evaluating your management team constantly. You're looking at the market and evaluating competitors and the like. And then as we were evaluating you know, the process to going public, I actually don't think that the company has dramatically changed its business strategy or its day-to-day -day operations. I mean, we're still servicing thousands of customers off the dozens of products that we have and pushing our growth into new geographies and new strategies. It's just that you know, somewhere along the way, you have to start thinking about capital a lot and capital as the fuel for continuous growth into the future. For us, the decision to go public was driven by our desire to continue to drive an M&A strategy that effectively enables to continue to grow and add new product lines, but also the idea of accessing the public capital markets for ease of capital raising. 
And as some people may know, raising venture capital is a very arduous and long process. You know, it usually takes several months of pitching and negotiating and the like, which makes sense. You know, it's in the private markets and there's less disclosures and so on and so forth. But in the public markets, certainly the transparency and the participation of a large scale number of investors means that we can move very quickly to raise capital. And so I think that we're still in the early stages of our growth and the idea of going public, you know, kind of helped us in that regard. But to answer your question around sort of leadership, I mean, it does take a lot of flexibility. And I think the requirements around founders to consistently reinvent their playbooks and then reevaluate what their roles are every three, six, 12 months means that the job that you have wasn't the job that you had six months ago, and it will not be the job that you have, you know, six months in the future. I did like to just double click on your development as a now becoming a public company CEO. As you touched on prior to fiscal note, you worked on the 2008 Obama campaign. You were also elected, I believe, to the Board of Education in Montgomery County. What were some of the lessons, maybe skill sets, experiences that you drew from those experiences that maybe have helped you succeed as a public company CEO? Well, I think it's two things. So the first thing is the campaign world, I would say, is a startup. The feel, honestly, of operations is probably more startup-y than most startups. I mean, you're working off pizza boxes late into the night. You have this singular mission that you're trying to accomplish. You're maniacally focused on the things that basically drive particular outcomes. You're extremely KPI focused and metrics focused down to the line of like individual customers. You're constantly doing segmentation of your users. So I actually think transitioning from the campaign world into startups is actually very natural for a lot of people. I think that it also gives you sort of a sense of what the work ethic and the drive is required to kind of get to a certain outcome. And so I think that that was a very transferable skill set, actually. As far as being a publicly traded CEO, the focus on publicly traded CEOs, I would say, is a lot on communications. And it's not just kind of broad-based communications in the traditional sense, but you have a lot of stakeholders that are constantly thinking about what the company and the CEO are saying. You have certainly institutional and retail investors, the analyst community, customers, employees, partners and vendors that are basically really, really dependent on the individual words that you say, the tonage of what you say, the strategies around when you say certain things and how you sort of segment different messages, different people and the audience and the individual message you're trying to get out there. And so say from a political perspective, it's all about communication because communications drives policy and policy drives outcomes. And so in the case of public CEOs, it's effectively the same thing, right? You're communicating a certain strategy that you're trying to execute on you're trying to win over supporters to your particular strategy. You know, if we articulate a growth strategy, we need to articulate both to our investor base who basically vote with their dollars every day, right? Whether they're buying or selling the shares. And then you're communicating that to your employee base who are voting with their feet on whether or not they believe in the mission and the growth strategy of the business. And so it is, I would say, an everyday election because you're trying to constantly convince people that this is the stock, this is the company that you want to kind of hitch your ride to. And a lot of that is dependent on, you know, strong leaders who have good communication skills at the end of the day. So maybe sticking with the theme of leadership, Tim, Fiscal Node is one of the largest employers in DC and you have offices all over the globe now. And so when it comes to your employees and navigating the complexity of the past two plus years, global pandemic, social justice movements, shifting work environments, while also balancing the need to keep the pace of growth towards that IPO, can you share kind of some of your leadership philosophies and perspectives on leading through such uncertain times? I think that the key thing for us that kind of carried us through consistently is being really true to our mission. And 
honestly, as wishy-washy as that sounds, when the pandemic hit, you know, I pulled the entire company together globally and I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, people need our information now more than ever. Our customers are navigating lockdowns, shutdowns, changes in tax policy, stimulus on a daily basis that's constantly changing. And we are the company providing that information to our customers. And so when you come into work tomorrow, you need to make sure that you keep that in mind and making sure that you understand that the work that you're doing does have an impact on people and is going to make a difference. And I think that was really compelling for our employees, you know, as we were kind of navigating a, a very tumultuous situation globally. I think even as we were navigating many of the other things you had talked about, I think that when we have to make decisions both internally or externally, the thing that we always go back to is what is the purpose of our company? What is the mission of our business? And then asking ourselves, this is a business that we want to be. What are the ethics and morals we want to operate by? And those are very fundamental questions. But when I look at the long arc of a business career or a company's history, they are determined by these decisions that people make on a day-to-day -day basis. And so frankly, life is short and you want to do things that are right and do things that are impactful. And short-termism isn't the best option for many things. And so I think staying focused in the long-term and that mission is what's really carried us into the future. Tim, I know that diversity and inclusion are extremely important to you personally. How do you link your DE&I goals to fiscal note strategy and operations? And how do you see that improving perhaps the company's performance and goals there? So, you know, our senior leaders are partially incentivized by DEI initiatives and goals, in addition to their operating metrics and the like. And it's not just because it's ethically good and morally good. I mean, it obviously is, but because I do think that in our business, diversity and inclusion do drive better business outcomes. They result in a closer association with customers, particularly on a global basis. A diverse workforce effectively means that you have a diverse skill set, the skill base that you can sort of draw upon. And it enables you to be able to kind of grow into new vectors that you may not have imagined in the future. So if we're trying to grow into the South American market and we need a slew of people who understand the Latin American business culture and can speak, you know, the language, Spanish and Portuguese or whatever the case may be, then having that diverse workforce effectively means that you can draw from a particular skill set uh, to be able to drive that growth into the future and also have these developed stronger relationships with our customers. Of course, the other thing is the ability to create a work environment that enables you to be able to attract and retain high quality people. And by high quality people, I mean people who are extremely competent at their jobs, who are frankly nice to one another, <laughs> to create a workforce and a culture that where people want to be and where they want to achieve and strive, where you minimize politics and corporatism and really focus on building a great business. Those are really strong fundamentals in terms of building a long-lasting company. And you can't really build a long-lasting company if you have a churn and burn culture or a culture that doesn't focus on customers or doesn't focus on growth. And all those things, I do believe, are underpinned by some form of DE&I that really enables you to have the intangibles in building a great company. So in your role as CEO, Tim, collaborating with stakeholders is critical. What are some of the leadership skills it takes to drive that collaboration within the C-suite and with other stakeholders, such as employees, shareholders, regulators? So the first thing is a lot of empathy and listening. Oftentimes when people think about negotiations or adversarial relationships, which I'm not saying that we do have, but just in general, it's typically that it's not very zero sum. The example that I always give is, you know, when I was younger, I used to think if I have uh, eight slices of pizza, there's only eight ways to divide it. And you know, you get four slices, and I get four slices, and maybe I can negotiate for the fifth slice. 
But sometimes, you know, people want pepperoni and they care about the pepperoni more than they care about the cheese or whatever. I mean, I don't, you know, my point is that there's different ways of looking at the pie that people want split up. And it starts with really deeply listening to how to solve problems. It obviously is exacerbated by different stakeholders who have different needs. You know, as an example, institutional investors are tied down to their quarterly annualized returns. And so you want to talk to them about your capital allocation strategy, how you're driving the best growth and the return on invested capital for the business. Executives and employees care a lot about career progression, about opportunity, about compensation, about all those things. And so you want to carefully listen to what their particular needs are and the like. Regulators care about, you know, a lot of things. They care about creating fair environments. They care about disclosures and the like. And so you want to be very attuned to what their particular needs are. And so I think that having that empathy for where people are coming from and what their incentives are, you know, effectively enables you to really hone in what you need to do for that particular stakeholder. I think the second thing is just having a maniacal focus on a North Star or a series of North Stars that you can drive the entire stakeholder community around. So if I say we want to do X with the business, then you communicate that consistently to every single stakeholder and they know where your motivations are coming from. And a lot of the decisions that are being made by the senior leadership team or by the CEO are also a reflection of a mirror reflection of our own incentives and the like. And so being able to clearly identify and then communicate that series of kind of North Stars, I think is critically important to kind of the infinite number of interactions that a company may have, you know, over the course of a quarter or, or over the course of a year. So Tim, as we bring this conversation to a close, I wanted to ask one final question with two parts. Looking ahead, what leadership skill sets and capabilities do you think will be most important for Fiscal Note to meet its strategic goals? And where do you see the company in, let's say, five years from now? Well, so I think that a company goes through various stages of growth. And I would put it on sort of two sides of the pendulum. There's sort of one side that requires infinite levels of creativity and innovation. This is the early stage of a company when you pull out the first eight by 11 sheet of blank paper and you write the business plan and you think about what's possible and the like. And then the other side is building operational processes, organizational structure, incentives, procedures and policies and compliance and all the things that enable you to be able to focus on building a great company and scaling it. And so companies typically kind of pendulum back and forth. They'll pendulum in the first part when they're an early stage company, and then they'll pendulum to the other side when they need to actually start building the company. And then they'll pendulum back when they need to build new growth engines and expand into new geographies. And then they'll pendulum back, build new processes in those geographies and new business lines and the like. And so I think that the key traits that we really need, I mean, you kind of need both when you're at our scale. You need people and leaders that are capable of just being wildly creative, going after new markets and geographies and saying, you know, if we have these 10 products, what's the art of the possible in our 11th and 12th product? How do we think about our expansion into new geographies or new areas? And what does that entail in terms of being able to take an executive, drop them into the middle of a country and then build an entire company or a subsidiary from scratch? That is an extremely important skill set to continue to drive long-term growth in the business. At the same time, you need operators who are capable of driving efficiency and who can basically take existing processes and just keep turning the screw over and over and over again to just get it tighter and tighter in terms of operations, because that's how you drive better capital efficiency, better operations, more profitability. And so I'm very, very cognizant of particular leaders and where they should be spending their times based off of their skill sets and their interests and saying, oh, this is a widely creative person. We need to stick them on looking at this new growth area or this new geography, drop them into an industry with an explanation that they need to get to some level of growth in this new market or whatnot. 
or if they're you know a seasoned executive that's capable of taking an existing business line and driving significant levels of efficiency or profitability out of it. So managing those types of leaders and building the right culture around that where people understand all different aspects of that, I think is important. And that of course leads into your second question, where you want the company to be in the future. From a mission perspective, I don't think our mission changes at all. We're very interested in continuing to aggregate legal government data and the like and building subscription businesses out of it. We are expanding into financial data. We're expanding into alternative data. We're expanding into other sources of information. And I think the business over a five-year period, 10-year period probably looks and feels increasingly like a Bloomberg, a Thomson Reuters, a FactSet, a Morningstar, a CoStar that has a dominant position in a handful of key information products and are able to build a compounding recurring revenue business that effectively renews every single year and enables you to be able to have good, strong growth into the future. And the requirements for kind of getting to that point, of course, are highly dependent on the two types of leaders that I talked about in terms of, you know, the widely innovative ones, and then certainly the key efficiency operators that drive the growth into the future. Thank you so much, Tim, for making the time to speak with us today, share your thoughts on leadership. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.